You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 115. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. This is the show where I share my fiction with you and keep you up to date on my life and my writing. It's also the place where I like to sit down with other authors and have them share their thoughts on the business and craft of writing. At Balticon this year, I got to have several of these conversations, and I'm going to share one of them with you today. Nathan Lowell is one of the most successful authors to make the jump from podcast fiction to a mainstream audience. While he hasn't had a New York Times bestseller or a high-profile publishing deal, Nate is consistently putting out mid-list titles that sell reliably and making a good living from it. That's sort of appropriate, if you ask me. Nate is never flashy, never one to grab the spotlight. But while others clamor for attention, he is quietly, diligently doing his own thing, and being awesome doing it. I sat down with him to find out how he does it. Hello, ladies and gents. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. You can find my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. And I am here today at Balticon with Nathan Lowell. Nathan is a full-time author, narrator, and podcaster. He began releasing his fiction in 2007 with his novel Quarter Share. Since then, he's released 12 books, garnered over 10 million downloads, and won two Parsec Awards for Outstanding Long-Form Speculative Fiction. His new book is named To Fire Called, and it is on sale now on Amazon. Welcome to the show, Nathan. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Why don't you tell us a bit about this story and how it came to be? Well, this is um, the second the second book in the next series following the shares. Once you get done with the shares, there's, there's no more shares, so mm-hmm. I had to start a new series. Right. So um, Ishmael Wong's adventures continue following his owner's share, and the adventure takes him into a part of the, the Golden Age universe that we haven't seen before or heard about. And so I've got actually two series running in parallel, The Seeker's Tales and The Smuggler's Tales. Ishmael is working with the Seekers, and then I've got another whole cast and crew working as smugglers. And are those stories going to braid together? Um, they will cross over. Okay. Uh, at the moment, the, the smugglers' tales happen in the gap between double and captain's shares. So that 10, 20, 12-year, 15-year period in there leaves room for things to happen that are not in Ishmael's storyline. So I started working with some new characters in a different part of the universe there. Mm -hmm. And so now I have to have Ishmael catch up with them. Was that because there were things that you needed to happen in the plot that Ishmael couldn't be a viewpoint for? Uh, Mostly it was because I'm a discovery writer. I'm a pantser. So I have to know what it is before I can have Ishmael fly into it. Mm. And so what I wanted to do was sort of experiment with it and see what it would look like from a completely different point of view. In, in the Ishmael stories, Ishmael is an outsider. And so through his eyes, we get to learn about this, this world, this universe. But because I want to look at the universe from the other side, the dark side, or what is perceived as the dark side, uh, I wanted somebody who was already at least slightly conversant with it to teach someone who wasn't conversant with it, to try to get a different dynamic working in the story where Ishmael isn't always trying to discover something, Mm -hmm. uh, where Natalia Ruggieri is always trying to teach her her wingman Zoya what's going on. So in this case, you've made the flip from looking at stories from from the student's perspective to looking at it from the mentor's perspective. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so now I've got these two stories running not chronologically together but the series is i just put book two of seekers out the beginning of the month Mm -hmm. and i'm working on book two of smugglers now and i've got a little bit of a problem because i want these two lines to cross over somewhere near the end but i think i want to have them cross over in the third book of seekers not in the third book of smugglers Mm -hmm. so i may have to write the next two smugglers books before I can write the last book for Ishmael. I don't know yet because I haven't written it. Right. Pantsing. 
So your books are really unusual. They're adventure stories, but they take place on a very small, intimate scale from a character level. And right. you've got this vast universe that these characters are traveling through, but instead of worrying about the fate of civilizations or the rise and fall of empires, it's how do I make a decent cup of coffee on this ship? How do I make a decent how do I get a decent cup of coffee? How do I get a decent pair of pants? How do I how do I make a living? How do I how do I exist from day to day? Because for me those are more interesting stories. Those are those are the stories that everybody has to deal with. And so I don't think there's anything wrong with the, the sweeping arcs, but I, I always you know, I always wondered what did that red shirted crewman do? <laughs> And, and who took his place? What, who did his job when he didn't come back? Because HR did not send a replacement. <laughs> you know, I, and so it's just these sorts of stories that have always sort of, they're kind of in the cracks of, of, of what science fiction normally deals with. So what, what do you, how do you tell a story about people who have no agency? And can you tell a compelling story about people who have no agency, have no money, they have no position, they have no authority except what they can gather to themselves by pulling people together, by helping other people they help themselves. And mm-hmm. Those stories, I, I think, have been missing for a while. And so I, I, my goal is to try to write some of them. Why do you think that it's important for people to have stories like that in settings like this that are, you know, I mean, there's been literary fiction for ages that's focused on the problems of small people. Right. Um, so why is it important that that exists in something like epics science fiction? Uh, I, I don't know if it's important or not. They're just the stories that I would like to read. They're mm. the stories that I want to read and can't find. Mm. And so I'm... I'm I'm left with the, the difficult task of having to write those, <laughs> um, which is not a bad place. I'm not, I'm not complaining. Uh, but I think, I think part of what I've seen over the last 10 years or so in speculative fiction in general uh, has not been a broadening but a narrowing. Hmm. Can you elaborate on that? Well, if you look at, the, if you look at space opera, because that's what I look at, mm-hmm. um, space opera is very much closely tied with military science fiction. Right. So is that all there is for space opera? Or are we talking about wider concepts? I've got to do a panel at 6 o'clock about the history. Mm-hmm. And, and I started looking back at, at, like, what did how we think about what we saw Arthur Clarke's vision of the future compared to B.V. Larson? Uh, hmm. So the stories are, are much wider. Werner Vinci's stories are much wider, even though he's working on a, on a, very, a very broad palette on a, in a very sort of limited kind of perspective in his Fire in the, Fire in the Deep series. But I, I, when I look at, at the stuff, particularly the indie stuff that's being published now, what I see is, I, I'm not going to say cookie cutter, mm-hmm. but I, I'm going to say, you know, David Weber, John Ringo, David Drake, they're all very much focused in on, okay, humanity is in danger from aliens from outer space and we've got to kill them all or die. Mm-hmm. Okay, I can read two or three of those. And then you want something else. And then I want something else, yeah. I mean, give me, give me something different. Give me, give me something that isn't the same thing. Give me something that isn't Star Trek. Give me something that isn't Starship Trooper. Give me something that isn't... Battlestar Galactica. Well, even Star Trek is more than that because Star Trek deals with the big complex ethical problems that come from being agents of for lack of a better term neoliberalism right right you know and they're it's they're, they're they're it's the science fiction embodiment of the neoliberal post-world war ii order right and you know how the the kinds of problems that that causes what do you what do you do when you try to help with the very best of intentions in a less developed world yeah, uh, you and, know, and that's the developed culture and everything goes wrong everything goes wrong yeah you, just because you think you know butter doesn't necessarily mean you do mm-hmm. so yeah i yeah star trek is probably my choice but mm-hmm. it, it's when i look at when i look at the at the books that i can that i can read when i look at the books that are out there right now and i see the same book over and over and over and over and over and over and over mm-hmm. and and i i still i still read them i don't get me wrong there's nothing wrong with those mm-hmm. but my when I sat down to write back in 2007, I always wanted to write science fiction ever since I was a little kid. And I always thought it was, that was so cool. And when I sat down to write in 2007, I said, well, I, in order to have a voice, 
uh, I needed to have something that I wanted to say, mm-hmm. and I had to be something that was uh, something I could I could get behind, something that I could support, something that I I believed in, and I also realized that because of my level of skill, of craft in those days, I was pretty much like hand tools. We're not talking power tools here. We're talking we're talking <laughs> hand tools. We're talking rusty hand tools. You know, we're talking two rocks and a stick in terms of craft. And so I knew I couldn't out Weber David Weber. I couldn't out Ringo John Ringo. I couldn't out tank David Drake. You know, it's like these are not universes that I can I can play in and be distinct in. Right. So I started looking around for universes that didn't necessarily exist. And the idea that I've said about a million times, I'll say it one more time. What if we sent freighters instead of frigates? What if the impetus for reaching out into the, into the universe was not conquest, but finance? So that what we're looking at is not an air force, but an airline. You know, it's not... And even less than an airline, but a shipping fleet. A shipping fleet, yeah. yeah. We're like, it's more like UPS right. in space. Um, and so these, that sort of set the tone for, all right, well, what, if, what would cause that to happen? Which, you know, so if, if that's the case, then the classic you know, speculative fiction question is, what if? Mm-hmm. Okay, what if we sent freighters instead of frigates? Why would we do that? Right. What resources could another star system possibly have that right. we would need so badly that we would spend all this money to send somebody there instead right. of finding it here? Instead of finding it here. And, th- and that, that led to the golden age of the solar clipper. And a lot of the regulation that happens sort of sub rosa. You don't really see what's going on. But you, you see this universe where ships pick up multi-tons of this thing from one planet and they fly it to another star. Well, why do they do it that way? Because that's the way it's done. And that that's a, one of the themes that keeps showing up over and over and over and over and over and over and over. Because that's the way it's done. Anybody who has worked in any organization of any size, anywhere in their lives has heard that's the way it's done. And so over and over and over again we see this what happens when you do it because that's the way it's done and what some of the problems are what some of the advantages of it are but also what some of the problems of it are so all these sort of little sub themes flitter through and in and around and as I've improved in craft as I've gotten older it doesn't sound like you know 10 years is all that long but it's been 10 years since I started. Mm-hmm. And so I look at things a little bit differently now. I read, I read a little more critically. I don't know if it's critically, it's the right word. But when I read, it's very hard for me to get into a book now. You have to be really good to get me into your book because as soon as I see, oh, no, you're not, not really. You're not going to do that again, are you? You're not. And so it's really easy for me to get sub-distracted by the, the craft, the constructs, the... Uh, the dialogue. The tropes. The tropes, yeah. It's the same feeling that you get when you go to the, see the latest Star Wars movie and they talk about another super weapon. It's yeah, like, yeah. really? Yeah. Really? <laughs> so, yeah, the tropes, and the tropes are interesting. Tropes are, tropes are fun. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that I like to do is take the tropes, and you have to have enough trope so that what you write is right. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't necessarily mean you have to have them all. And it doesn't necessarily mean you have to accept the standard for all of them as you go. And so I don't have military battles. I have very few physical conflicts. Uh, all the conflicts are there. In Ishmael's story, they're all, all internal, almost all internal to him. Natalia's stories are a little bit different. So what, how do I keep it in space opera? where you have to have this adventure, where you have to have, you know, this galactic civilization. And so, well, yeah, okay, fine. So we've got this civilization that spans stars. It's interstellar commerce. They're engaged in economic warfare. Mm -hmm. They're not engaged in physical warfare. How do we make that compelling? How do we make that story real enough that people want to read it? And Mm -hmm. I don't know. You just do it. Now, um, one question I did get in prepping for this is uh, P.C. Herring pointed out that in two of your recent books, in Milk Run and To Fire Called, 
that you did have a form of space combat, yep. but that is very different from the way that it's done in Star Trek. Yeah. Can you say a little bit about that? Well, it, it, yeah. Uh, one of the... I don't want to say too much because it's a bit of a spoiler. Okay. There is the Golden Age, the Confederated Planets Joint Committee on Trade, CPJCT side of the universe. That's the one that Ishmael's shares books are all set in. You see everything that he has done within the box, within the boundaries of Confederated Planets Joint Committee on Trade. But in the history of the expansion into the Western Annex, these are the Johnny-come-latelys. These are not the people who settled. These are not the people who moved out into the Western Annex and established the toeholds that allowed people to move out into that, that region of space and to develop it commercially. Before them, there was a whole collection of prospectors, of explorers, who went out and found the systems that had the planets that could be exploited, that had the resources that could be used. And much like we settled in the West, where people moved West and, and all across the West, there are these ghost towns where people came and settled and, and worked for a while, and then whatever it was that drew them there ran out, or the highway went past them, or whatever. Uh, and they no longer exist except as you know empty shells. And Toholtz, they never left. CPJCT came out and just took over the expanded pieces around the edges. But the core, the toehold spaces, maintained their integrity. But like the West, the sheriff is the guy with the fastest gun. There's a couple of things that I added to it. One is that you have to be able to protect yourself. But the other is you can't do it alone. So you don't tear up your neighbor's fence because you may need that fence. You, right. don't, you, know, you don't piss in his water supply because you may need a cup of water someday. And so this sort of, you have to stand up for yourself, but you have to look out for everybody else, is sort of the, the driving ethic behind what's going on in Toehold Space. And of course, everybody in CPJCT says, oh no, that's the Wild West, that's the slums, you don't mm -hmm. want to go there. There's Those nothing are the barbarians. There. Those are the barbarians, <laughs> yes. And so you have this sort of dichotomy between this perception of the Golden Age of the Solar Clipper and Toehold Space. Mm -hmm. And so you have to be able to protect yourself. So there are weapons out there. There are places where people shoot at each other. There, There is a group of people who make their way by preying on those who don't take care of themselves well. And so Ishmael runs into a group that might be one of those people. And so yeah, there's, there's uh, the two words that I never thought I would write in an Ishmael Wong book is missile lock. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you were in the Coast Guard before you yep. became a writer. How did that experience shape your um, your writing, either in the the things that you write about or the, the themes that you explore? Well, I was in the Coast Guard when I graduated from, I enlisted in the Coast Guard in 1970 when I graduated from high school because it was either enlist or get drafted and I didn't really want to go to Vietnam. Right. So I spent five years in the Coast Guard. Uh, I spent uh, a year floating off the East Coast in a medium endurance cutter. Uh, I spent a year and a half in Kodiak, Alaska. Um, before that, I, was, I, I spent almost a year in training as a radioman. So what I learned on board ship, and even though we were only going out for like two weeks at a time, maybe three weeks at the most, generally our patrols were about a week. You know, so you go out for a week. But there were people who would go out for 30 days, 40 days. It was, it was really common. I just didn't happen to pull that duty. I went to Alaska for 18 months. I just I couldn't leave, really. Mm -hmm. um, I, did, I did come home on leave for a week or two, but that's a long way to go. In 1975, yeah. from Alaska back to Maine, which is where my family lived, that was a long ride. Yeah, no kidding. It's still a long ride. It was even longer <laughs> then. But what I, what I learned was that, and, it, and I think it plays most into the early share books, because I learned that what seems like it should be important, what looks like it should be exciting, isn't really when you're doing it. So people complain, well, you talk about the food. You talk a lot about the food. You know, everything is about the food. It's about the coffee. Yeah. Yeah. Because everything else is work. Everything else is work. Work doesn't stop. When you're underway, work doesn't stop. It's only what, what watch are you on? You know, what shift are you taking? You know, are you a day worker or are you a watchstander? And, and what matters is 
you know, what are the things that stand out? The things that stand out are the meals. The things that stand out are what it means to know that the guy you rely on to replace you in your chair is now having breakfast so that he can replace you in his chair. In this chair. And what does that do to you over weeks at a time when you see the same 40 people all the time? Uh, and these are not people that you chose to be with. Right. You know, it's like you go to the office, but you never leave. <laughs> you know, you go to the office and you never leave. So May 1st, you walk into your office. May 30th, you're allowed to go home. And everybody who's in the office with you is in the same place. They can't go home either. And so what you're left with is an environment where you can either make it miserable or you can make it tolerable or you can make it enjoyable. And there are people who want to do some of each of those. Mm -hmm. And it really doesn't matter what group you're with. There's always going to be somebody who just wants to piss on it all. And it seems really striking. One of the things about Ishmael is that where whatever he touches, he tries to make better. He tries to yeah, improve the things he, that are around him. He does, and that's that's one of the that's one of the things that I really work on, because one of the realities, and I'm not sure everybody agrees with me, but one of the realities of Ishmael is that while he tries to, he doesn't always succeed. He always thinks he does. <laughs> he always thinks he does. But he doesn't always succeed. But coming from an outsider's perspective, he's got a different take on things. And so that gives me a lot of opportunity to play the that sort of, well, why do we do it like that card? Mm-hmm. And, so, and it's, it's, I, I find it gratifying to try to find ways for him to try to succeed, to set things up so that he won't necessarily succeed. Mm-hmm. And, and even in the places where he thinks he's succeeded, to show the reader that he really didn't. And there are some aspects in which it seems like, as going through the, tr- the traitor's tales, um, the more he succeeded, the less happy he was. He did, yeah. But, well, it, in, in a way, yes. In a way, no. Uh, part of it was he aged a lot. Because when he started, he's 18. At the end of the owner's share, he's 40, 42, I think, someplace like that. And so a lot of the things that he was doing in the beginning are a lot of the things that, that all young people do in the beginning. It's like, how do I, how do I make my way? Who, who am I? What mm-hmm. do I do? How do I, how do I eat? Mm-hmm. Uh, where do I, how do I keep a roof over my head? I'm watching my kids go through that now. You know, how do I eat? How do I keep a roof over my head? Well, you, you stay at home until you can do something else, until you figure out what that's going to be. And then... He didn't have the opportunity to stay home, so he had to go. He had to do something. Mm-hmm. And so the first three books are, are really about him trying to find his feet. And in a certain sense, he didn't. He never had. No, he never really found out who he was. No. He was just sort of, he was, re, he was reacting more than acting. It was one of the reasons that I wanted to start the new series, because I wanted to see him start to take, uh, have a bit more agency instead of being herded or shepherded or doing what he thought he should be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, there was there's parts of being in space that he really likes. There's parts of being in space that he's not necessarily all that enthusiastic about. Mm-hmm. And so, in Ownershare and in, in this new series in particular, where he's we're bringing back some of the older characters to play along with him, and because it's the Seeker's Tales, everybody is everybody in the books are seeking something. Mm. Everybody is seeking something because that's sort of like the human condition. <laughs> Everybody's seeking something. And it's only a question of... There are several questions you can ask about that. One is, what do you do when you get it? Mm-hmm. One is, what if you never find it? Mm-hmm. Uh, and what is, why are you seeking this to begin with? So there's a lot of interesting questions you can ask about what are you seeking. And they can be really concrete things. So, you know, plots plot devices or you know I'm, I'm seeking this ship mm-hmm. okay fine that's a plot device it's not really it's a MacGuffin it is a MacGuffin and I have I have Chekhov's MacGuffins everywhere <laughs> so yeah it's a bit of a it's a bit of a challenge and this last book they, people were not happy with the ending because they lost sight of the fact that the story is not about the MacGuffin it's about Ishmael mm-hmm. and when Ishmael's tasks when Ishmael's part of this arc was completed the story was done and I have this nasty habit it's a terrible habit really 
when the story is over, the book ends. <laughs> and so, you know, I'm not going to write another couple, three or four, five, six, seven, eight chapters because you want to know what happened over here or what happened with this person here or what, what, what happened with this one or why don't they keep in touch or all of this other stuff because that's not part of the story. Well, I'm sure it would be fun, but it's not part of the story. If it's not part of the story, I'm not going to put it in the book. Right. And so that's also one of the, one of the things that I've... I don't know if I've learned it or if I came to the realization that I have to be aware of what the story is. When I was doing Ownershare, Ownershare was 225,000 words before I got to the end of the first draft. And then I realized this isn't even... You know, there's... there's 40,000 words in here that aren't actually part of the story. So I cut them out, got it down to 195,000 after I got the final draft in. It's still a brick. That was for ownership? Ownership, yeah. Yeah. How do you decide the pacing of your books? Because we go, you know, when we're writing, we telescope in and out. You know, we may cover 10 years in the space of a couple pages and right. then spend a chapter or three on a 10-minute period. What, how do you decide what events you zoom in on and which ones you zoom out on? Ownership probably has the most of those. Most of the stories are very linear. Most of the stories are very limited. So uh, in each of the shares, he, he got a pay raise, got a new job, got some new challenges and whether or not he beat them and to what degree he paid them. Once he got them done, then that was the end of the story. So then I had to have, a, maybe there was another gap between, because particularly between double share and captain share, you have to have time in grade before you can be a captain. Sure. So between the time he made third mate and the time we see him making the transition into captain, it's been years gone by. There's nothing, there's nothing there for me to talk about because there's no new share. Yeah. Third mate, second mate, first mate. That's all double share. You don't get to be another share. Yeah, you're just doing the work. You're just doing the work that allows you to become, in the next book, a captain. And in the next book, owner. So I, I tend to start slow because I, I'm of the mind that I want to leave room to go faster. You can only go so fast. If you go too slow, things fall off. Mm-hmm. If you go too fast... You really don't see what's happening. You're just seeing the description of it. Yeah. And so the, where it shows up most is in the Tanith Fairport books, where Tanith starts out walking. And when you see her, she's waking up in the morning, and she's pumping up her bedroll, and she's getting out on the, on the road, and she's walking. And that's it. That's the big excitement of the opening chapter. Is she, she takes a walk, and she meets a guy on the road. That's the opening chapter. And... I've had, a, I've had a couple of writers say, you know, this really is not the way you want to start a book. And it's like, no, it actually is the way I want to start a book. Because later on, things speed up. But they don't look, they look like they speed up more because the pace is set slow to begin with. Hmm. If you're in walking pace, if you're in a story that is sort of sauntering along, and then all of a sudden you break into a trot, that stands out. If you slow back down to a walk again, and then the next thing you know you have to run, that stands out a lot more. So for me, pacing is, is a lot more, I'll give you something to, you know, I'll give you something to, whoa, but then I'm going to make you sit back down again. And I can, maybe I'll let you stand up again, but then I'm going to sit back down again. Um, Patrick McLean says, I, I write from one to three so that when a story builds to five, it stands out. So was there a author um, that you particularly modeled that approach on or you know, somebody who influenced the, the way that you pace your books? Uh, mostly I write in reaction. I got really tired of three warbirds decloaked off the port bow. I got really tired of the books that start with the blood dripping off the sword and the main characters staring off across the field of battle. I wanted to write stories where the reader had some investment before I asked them to care who won the battle mm. or whether or not the warbirds mattered. And so I, I think a lot of the structures that I use, the ones that I use explicitly, because I'm sure there are ones that I use without even realizing it, but the ones that I, I really focus on most are, are the reaction ones. They're the ones that, okay, I'm not gonna start the story with this cliche. The difference between a trope and a cliche is execution. <laughs> if, if you don't do it very well, it's a cliche. Right. Uh, if you manage to execute it, it's a, it's a valid trope. 
So yeah, I don't know. I you know I grew up on Heinlein, Asimov, Clark, Bradbury. Do they influence me? Sure. Could I identify how? I don't think so. So let's um, switch to talking about the business side of writing a little bit. When did you make the switch to being a full-time author? 2012. Okay, so you five had years. Five years. That's well, half of the time that you've been doing this. Yeah, you, yeah. That's five, really in, in the summer of 2012. My day job was a soft money academic position, mm-hmm. and the government didn't cough up the cash. Got it. So the job went away, and so I was left with becoming an unemployed academic or a writer. Uh, I could have. I could have. Uh, gone to look for another job. I had actually was doing some part-time work for another university. I feel this. My specialty was distance education, so I taught in Kentucky, although I lived in in Colorado. Okay. Uh, but what I discovered was that I could make more as a barista. When you started counting the hours and the money, I was getting paid twenty four hundred dollars a semester to teach a course that took five or six hours a day every day. So that was not, it was, it, was, it was rewarding, it was good, you know, it was a good job, but it was not very, didn't, it didn't pay the bills. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and as, starting out as a junior faculty member at 52 was a hard row, and it was right after they made the big changes, there were some big changes in higher education after No Child Gets no child left behind. No child gets ahead. Yeah, no child left <laughs> no behind. No child gets ahead. <laughs> because they changed almost all of the um, schools of education changed their criteria so that if you wanted to teach educational technology, which was my field, you had to have classroom experience. Mm. If you didn't have classroom experience, you couldn't get a job. I didn't have classroom experience because I came from technology. I didn't come from education. And so in order to get the experience that I needed, I needed to go back to school and spend $5,000 more so that I could get a job teaching $25,000 a year to get the classroom experience that I needed to get a teaching position that would pay me $45,000 a year. And I'm like, no, this is not, this is not something. And at that time, in 2012, I had five, six books out. Um, that was when I had to cut, ride, and loose because they weren't actually doing what they said they were going to do. Uh, that was your publisher? That was the publisher. Originally, I went with Ryden Publishing in Virginia. And the, they, they got the first couple of books out. That was, that was great. It was wonderful. But then they stopped. And I, they wouldn't... We had problems. Just leave it at that. And uh, so one of the clauses in my contract was the pain in the ass clause. And without any particular cause or notice, all I needed to do was give them 30 days and they'd give me my books back. And so I gave them the 30 days, they gave me my books back. And it took us 90 days to get it all straightened out, but it did come to be. And so I'm left with all of my books, and only four of them had ever been published. So new imprint, new publication, I spent a year putting them all back out again, getting them re-edited, getting, them, getting new covers, putting it all together, so that I had the foundation that I needed to publish the last two. So everybody's waiting for these last two books to come out, and they're going, oh, so, yeah, uh, 2012 was the year I started, and uh, that it was not a bad year. I didn't make as much that year as I made as a teacher, as I worked for when I worked for the National Center on Severe and Sensory Disabilities. I didn't make as much that year, but the following year I did. I made more. Uh, now I pay, I pay more taxes than I used to make in income. Wow. So, what do you think were the important lessons? that you picked up along the way that helped you to to succeed in this this fashion? What were the things that you did that helped make it work so well? I paid attention to audience. Tell, tell me about that. Well, this could take a while. Okay. Okay. Uh, my undergrad degree is in business administration and marketing, mm-hmm. minor in marketing. And I'm old school marketing. Marketing is what you do before you have something to sell. Marketing is what you do to decide what you're going to sell. Mm. Okay, so marketing is examining the environment. What's the market? What's out there? Where can you sell? What market is not being served? Which ties back to my reaction writing to: We're not going to send the Navy. We're not going to send the Air Force. We're going to have civilians. B 
because that wasn't stories that were being told. Those are stories where I could have a voice. Those are stories where I could have an effect. Those were stories that weren't being told and maybe people would like to read them mm -hmm. besides me. So I have this, I, I'm going to be a writer. What am I going to write? I'm going to write science fiction because that's what I've been reading for more than half a century now. I know the literature. I know how it works. I know the tropes. I know the cliches. And they were Adam and Eve is not a good story. You know, so I have this in my hand. I have the ability to put words together on a page. I just finished a doctoral dissertation. I know how to write a long book. I long, know how to write a long, boring book. <laughs> uh, and so I, learning how to write a, a better book, fiction, was easy. Um, working with patio books, working in audio, working in social media. I've been working in social media for long, way longer than it's been called social media. I learned a lot about how social media works in relation to communications theory. I learned a lot about how is it that some people that you don't ever see but only talk to online, you can feel closer to them than you can to the person who sits at the desk next to you. How is that possible? Uh, and there, there is a couple, of, a couple of really important things. One of them is immediacy and one of them is honesty. So you're not necessarily going to be honest with the person who sits next to you because you may not have that sort of relationship where you can be honest with you. you, have to do, you have to, you've got a, a constraint on what you can say. Uh, communications with the people from Patio Books. People from Patio Books wanted to talk to me about the stories. What did you, you know, when is the next book coming out? What's, how's, it, how's it all going? So learning what readers care about, learning the difference between your platform and your network, learning that readers don't really care how you write your book. They only care that you write your book. So a lot of the things that I saw authors doing back then and still see authors doing now, uh, some of the advice they get from marketing is really terrible. Hmm. We are, in fact, content creators. So we are content marketing. But the content that we are creating that readers want is not a blog post. It's the book. So I stopped blogging, except once a month I put a status blog up and say, okay, this is where I am the beginning of the month. This is where I am this month. I've been doing that for years now. In fact, for a while I was only doing it once a quarter. And then that got a little odd. So there's, there's, a whole, there's a whole bunch of related concepts that go here. The, the fastest way to be interesting, because you want to be interesting, you want readers to find you interesting. And the way most people go about that is to tell readers what you're doing. Okay, maybe, maybe. The fastest way to be interesting is to be interested. If I'm interested in you, if I'm interested in you, what are you doing? Who are you? What's your kid's name? Do you have kids? Are you, do you, are you married? Do you have something? Are you, you know, recovering from a job loss? Or do you have a, a condition? Are, tell me about you. Then you are automatically going to be in my world. I don't have to tell you I'm a writer. I don't have to tell you what my next book is. I don't have to tell you what my last book was. I don't have to tell you anything if I can make you interested in me by being interested in you. It's the old, was it, was it Dale Carnegie salesman used their name? You know, always when you call them on the phone, call them, call them by their name? Yeah, I don't call them by name. I know, I, I know handles, I know Twitter handles, I know Facebook profile pages, I know, you know, I know, I know people who you know, are, are dealing with difficulty. I know people who are, who are celebrating, I know people I don't know them all because God knows way too many of them. But in the beginning, the first couple hundred, I, you know, I because of patio books, because of the intimacy of that connection, I was able to to really connect. Because coming to events like Balticon and then Mile High and Cosine and being available and active in those social media channels in an authentic way, I don't robo tweet. If mm -hmm. I tweet, I'm there because that's actually one of, one of the constructs of immediacy that, that helps create that kind of social connection using channels that were not, you know, meat space. And so being able to navigate in those, being able to use what I knew about how social media works, how computer-mediated environments operate. For five years, I worked in 
Second Life to try to make it accessible for people who are blind. Mm. So we've got a 3D space that requires you to be able to see what's going on around you and to be able to click on a mouse in order to get someplace. And if you're blind, you can't do it because you don't know where to click. So for five years, I worked, I worked to make it accessible. We created a, a virtual seeing eye dog, and the dog knew how to click. And we, we experimented. We worked with IBM for a while, but we experimented with ways for, for people to find out what was in the, re- in the area without having it be difficult for them to navigate or even have to tell anybody else that they couldn't see it. So they could be as, as open and as natural as they wanted. It could wear a ring that would take care of the, the dog functions. Or if they wanted to have a cane, they could have a cane because that's how they presented themselves. That's how they wanted to present themselves. So this idea of how we present and how we operate in these computer-mediated environments, one of the difficulties is language, virtual, virtual environment. You know, virtual environment is not like a virtual prison. Mm. Virtual prison is an actual place. It's a place that is not a prison, but it has some of the aspects of a prison. A virtual environment is a special use of the term virtual, and it simply means that it's a computer-mediated environment. It doesn't mean that it's, it's not exactly an environment. It doesn't mean that it's not a space. It doesn't mean that it's like a space. It just means that it's being developed by a computer. And one of the, one of the things that, that always rankled me was people who would say, well, yeah, but it's, it, you know, it's not real. No, but the person with the keyboard is real. Mm-hmm. And does that make it any less real if you're dancing in Second Life? You're floating in a hot tub in Second Life? Does it make it any less real if you're talking to this person who happens to be at a keyboard in another part of the world? And, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, okay, what if you call your mother? Is she any less real? Is that conversation any less important? Is how you talk to her different because you're not in the room? Well, yeah, you may be able to roll your eyes a little bit more, but you know, um, but you're not you're not going to treat your that conversation with your mother any differently than you would if you were in the room. Right. It's Simply not a be- fake conversation. It's not just a fake because it's, it's, it's mediated by technology. By technology, and and in many cases these days, it's mediated by the same computers. So you're using a very intimate approach to building your audience. Yes. Of, of, just relating to people one-on-one, one-on-one, being interested in their lives, and because you build that that brand of a person, you know, I am the author who will respond to you and have a conversation, have a conversation. with you, yeah. rather than just trying to push my next book on you. Yeah, I don't. I I make it a point not to tell people when my book is coming out. They always want to know when's the next book coming out. I learned a long time ago not to tell them. Um, <laughs> At this point, we, I, I've sort of evolved into there's a closed Facebook group for fans. Mm-hmm. And so if, if you're a fan, you can find the closed Facebook group. And I will, I haven't been able to this week because I've been here, but uh, usually several times a day, I will stop in at the Facebook group and they will ask questions and I will answer them. We'll have conversations. There's a lot of posting about coffee. <laughs> um, uh, but, and there was a lot of, you know, there's, we actually had to start a spoilers group because people wanted to talk about the spoilers. And other people that hadn't got the chance to read them, so I had to start a spoilers group. So we go in and you ask me anything in the spoilers group in particular. If you ask me anything, I will tell you. And whether I will warn you if it's going to spoil a later book. But, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I'm I, my part of my brand is I. You, know, you write in me an email, I will write you back. If I see the email, if I find the email, I will write you back. Uh, I'm not a hundred percent because. I get between 700 and 1,200 emails a day, and so I, you know, I, there, there are times when I, you know, it's like I discover an email, weeks later, it will show up, and I, I go through and start sweeping out the spam and cleaning out all the stuff that comes in, and you know, all of the people who want to build a website and all the people who want to put a new content, or write content for me, and and it's like by the time I get done sweeping those people out and and dealing with with the, the people who who actually legitimately have some business interest or all the other stuff that comes in. I get, bet- I get between 700 and 1,200 emails a day, a day, every single day. I, I'm going to go home to, well, no, I'm not going to go home to a completely full inbox because I've got inbox here, but I, my main other inbox at home has been filling up as I've been here. So, yeah, I, I, I will write you back. I will talk to you. I, will, um, I, have, a, I have a fan whose father, is a retired Navy, 
and I have a lot of retired Navy. I have also a lot of knitters. <laughs> but her father was a big fan, and he got the books from Ryden. And so it was a long time between new books coming out, and particularly new books coming out in paper, because he had to have paper. And so I, I, I arranged to get some paperback copy. I think it was Captain Cher. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was Captain Cher. And uh, I sent it to her. I sent it to him, signed. I still had his address, so I sent him a copy, signed. And being able to do that, being able to reach out to these individuals who've written to me, there was one woman who wanted to use Tanith in a, as a classroom. She was teaching a, a junior high school um, literature class for 27 girls and wanted to show them a, a different vision of an adult female character. And so I, I sent her a case. But being able to reach out to those people, being able to, I can't do everyone, because I don't know everyone, mm -hmm. but I know a few here and there. And I, I'm not going to turn somebody away because I don't think they're interesting, because I don't think they're, they're worthy, you know, they're not worth my time. Um, I've got, you know, there's people here who have sent me story ideas. And they think I've used them. Um, some of them I have. Some of them I have. Um, I've got to the point now where I, I crew all of my ships with fans. <laughs> um, and I, I generally, if they're going to be an unpleasant character, I'll actually clear it with them first because <laughs> I don't necessarily want that to be a problem. Um, but I gotta have a lot of names. I gotta have a lot of names. You got 40 people on a ship, boy. You gotta have a lot of names. And so I do fans. I reach out to the fans and say, okay, you wanna be on the ship? Do you wanna, do you wanna name a ship? Do you wanna name a ship after you? Whatever. It, what was one of the things I did in the early days was I, I had contests. So you wanna name a ship? Write a con you know, I had a logo contest for Diarmia Salvage and Transport. And if, you know, send me your logo. If I like your logo, I'll pick your logo and you can name a ship. I'll name a ship after you. And the guy who won actually didn't want the ship named after him. He wanted it named after his mother. Aww. Yeah. So I named the ship after his mother. Um, and now I've got ships named after fans. I've got ships named after people. But that's sort of, that's sort of reaching out one-on-one. -on -one. It's like, okay, I, I'm going to reach out to you. And what happens is that that's that link that gives me the thousand true fans. That's that one extra step that says, okay, he's not somebody who's trying to sell me a book. He's an interesting guy. He's somebody who is approachable. If I can make a connection to somebody in a meaningful way to them, not in a meaningful way for me, but in a meaningful way to them, what happens is they know people who like science fiction. They know people who like kind of off-the-wall stories. They know people who might be willing to give a shot to a story where nothing happens. And you only need to have a few of those out there being your ambassador for it to begin to snowball pretty quickly. And I spent five years putting books out without trying to sell one. I've spent five years building a core audience. And while that core audience didn't necessarily come across, about 10% of it did. I don't think any more than that. But because of, because of the brand, because of the setup, because of the way I was already doing business with patio books, with that ability to connect or the desire to connect, um, I was able to pull that forward into when I started to try to sell books, when I started to put books out, when I started to build um, a wider audience on other platforms like Facebook, like Google+. I'm on Google+, but I talk to writers on Google+. I talk to readers on Facebook. So the, the audience is, you know, it's... It's not the answer for everybody, but for me, the answer is one at a time. That's awesome. So if I can if I can get one, one will get me ten. Right. That's ten true. Get, ten will get me a hundred. I only need to get one. I got to get the right one. Yeah. And and I'm willing to spend the time and effort it takes to get the right one. 
I think is that the those are the people that Malcolm Gladwell called the Mavens. Yeah, <laughs> in a certain sense, yeah, yeah, they're the Mavens. They're the ambassadors. They're the ones. I don't have to sell a book because they're all selling for me. It's a lot easier to sell something that's not yours. <laughs> and that's one of the things. That's one of the. One of the truths, it's a lot easier to sell something that's not yours mm-hmm. because you don't have any vested interest in it. You don't have any financial system. Your credibility is automatically higher. You know, if, if I tell a fan about a book that I like, I'm not going to earn anything if they go out and buy the book. It's not going to make any difference to them. Mm-hmm. It may make a difference to me. That's another the issue of social capital is an important one. Because if I tell a fan to write a book that I like the book and they go read it and they don't like it, they're not necessarily going to believe me the next time. Mm. And so th- there's a lot of, uh, I see them all the time, there's these sort of, I'll pimp your book, you pimp mine. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't work. <laughs> that doesn't work. It, it, can, it can work, but it has to have, there has to be a core principle. It doesn't necessarily have to be genre. One of the very first times that I did this, I did it with uh, Deborah Geary, with one of her books, and I think it was her 99-cent novella, which is a modern it was a novella, it was a contemporary romantic comedy, short book. But there was something, her, her writing had a lot of the same sort of personal level, it was about the people, not about the company kinds mm-hmm. of stuff going on. So it was, it was, I read it, I loved it. I loved it. I, I read a lot of romance anyway. Romance fascinates me. That's a, probably a whole other conversation. <laughs> um, I read it and I loved it. So we decided that we were going to try an experiment. And so we gave away three books to each other's audience. And she put a post on her blog, I put a post on my blog, and the first three people who commented got a copy of each book of this book. And so she thought that was pretty unfair because she was giving away a 99-cent novella and I was giving away a 4.95 book. And I said, I don't know. It's, it's an e-book. Right. You know, it's, a, it's an e-book. I, I, this is not, we don't, we don't need to worry about this. And what we found out, within two weeks, she was getting emails from retired Marines, ex-Navy captains, wanting to know when her next book was coming out. And I was invited to the online knitting community, where there turns out there was a Nathan Lowell forum. And they invited me to go to the Nathan Lowell forum. (laughs) That's awesome. So, yeah. But it was because I could point to that book and say, this is something that I liked, and these are the reasons that I liked it. Now, maybe you will like it, maybe you won't, but here's a chance for three of you who read this blog to comment and get a copy. And so it was like shot in the dark. Since then, I've done a lot of, I can promote people, but I have to be able to tell my fan base why and why I think they'll like them. Mm-hmm. So I can promote Glenn Stewart's uh, Hand, of Mar- Hand of Mars series. It's great stuff. It's science fantasy more than science fiction. There's a certain military aspect to it, but it's also a very up-close-and-personal story with this guy who is the Hand of Mars. I can't necessarily do the same thing for his military science fiction, because his military science fiction is much more... I, I hesitate to use the word mainstream, but... Commercial. It's, it, it's much more... Yeah, it's much more... It's what you expect from, from military science fiction. I mean, it, the guy doesn't lose any body parts like Connor Harrington, but he's, you know, he still has all of these, the same kinds of angst over getting people killed and having to go to war and all the rest of that and, and all the equipment and hardware and artillery and laying, laying traps and all that. It doesn't have the same aesthetic. It doesn't have the same feel. So I can promote his Hand of Mars. I can't necessarily promote Duchy of Terror to my fans. Mm-hmm. I like Duchy of Terror, but it's not one that I'm going to promote to my fans because the one thing that I... I absolutely believe in protecting is that relationship that I have with my fans. I'm not going to pers- I'm not going to give them a promo for a book that I don't believe in. Right. And it doesn't matter if I know you and like you. I, if I don't, you know, if this is not a book that I can believe in, and we all have books that nobody, not everybody believes in, even me, then I won't promote it. And it has to be something that fits thematically with the reason why people came to read you in the first place. In the place. first place, yeah. So Dan Thompson's Ship of My Father, Ships of My Fathers. It's a great book. It's a great book. There's a certain military aspect to it, but it's a, it's a great first novel in particular. Um, his second book has just come out now, Deaths of My Fathers. 
What is it? I think it's debts. D e p d e b t s. Debts of my fathers. And the first one was ships of ships my of fathers. my fathers. And yeah. the author's name was Dan Thompson. Dan Thompson. Yeah. Okay, we'll put that in the show notes. And and get it, see if you can get him on Raven and the Writing Desk. He's he's a fascinating guy. He lives in Austin. Cool. Um, but he he writes in a, in more of a commercial world. He writes you know, the, the captain is dealing with losing his father, who was the ship captain of the freighter, mm-hmm. and so he still has access to the freighter, but he can't fly it because he's too young. Mm. So there's there's these sort of like interesting stuff, interesting, uh, particularly in the indie world, that are not not stories you're going to sell to tour. They're not stories that Bain is going to be interested in, but they're still stories that I find fascinating. Because they are different. They are very different. Nice. So what's next for you after this book? Oh, I still have... Let's see. Uh, this this book... The, well, the book I just published... To Fire Called. To Fire yeah. Called. Um, the book following that will be By Darkness Forged. But in the other series, I've got Milk Run. I'm currently writing Suicide Run. And the third book in that series will be um, Home Run. And I've I've had I've had suggestions for beer run, snack run, <laughs> pizza run. <laughs> there were a couple others. I think it was an ice cream run. So yeah, I, what's next for me is the next book, uh, and I, I'm not sure if I'm going to which which book it's going to be. Um, I know the the book that I'm writing now is I've got twenty three thousand words into um, suicide run, and then it will either be home run after that or the third book in, in the Ishmael series and then once I have those three those two trilogies wrapped up I've still got Cape Grace which is the sequel to South Coast and the prequel to Half Share so I gotta write that book I got 35,000 words in the middle of that that I've, that I've got and I need, to, I need to finish that so that I can close off the old, the old work and start moving toward the new work so I think we've answered the question of where people can find your stuff. Yeah, NathanLowell.com is a good place. It's a good place to start. That's uh, my, uh, my daily podcast is shows up there. And if people want to get in touch with you on Twitter or Facebook? I'm real easy to find. Uh, and Lowell on Twitter. And uh, if you just search my name, you'll find me. And do you have any other in-person appearances this year besides Balticon? I'm doing some presentations for Colorado Gold which is the Rocky Mountain Fiction Writers Annual Writers Convention. And then I'll be doing Mahaicon in Denver in October. And then next January, I will be at Cosign in Colorado Springs. Those are the ones that I know about. I'm planning on being back here next year, but I'd like to find one more that I can go to to get for a year. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on The Raven and the Writing Desk, Nathan. It was great to have you. Thanks for having me. And that was our interview. I hope you enjoyed it. Theodora Goss said, I say this honestly and somewhat harshly. If you're not willing to prioritize your writing, perhaps you should do something else. So, let's see where my priorities were this week. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 12,118 words this week, over the course of 15.25 hours, for an average writing speed of 795 words per hour. As of Friday night, I have gone 61 days without breaking my chain. This week my partner Mal is away at Burning Man, so I devoted a lot of time and attention to my writing. I'm very close to finishing The Lost in the Least. This book has a lot of characters with their own story arcs, so I'm just working on tying everything up so the book ends in a satisfying place. I think by this time next week the book will be done. We have three new donors on the Patreon feed this week. Please welcome Adrian, Stephen, and Andrew. Becoming a patron gives you access to special content you can't get anywhere else. That includes bonus artwork, story previews, and behind-the-scenes commentaries on the stories. It's the very best way to support my work and help me keep doing the show. If you're already a patron, thank you so much. You guys are amazing. And if you're not a patron yet, why not join over a hundred other amazing people in making this happen? Head on over to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester and make a pledge today. 
If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorcityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and my Twitter handle is Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more writing goodness. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2017 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.